You're listening to the Arise Bible Academy podcast. In this new module, Foundations, Philip Edwards introduces this subject by stressing the importance of laying a solid foundation to the Christian life, starting with the first of six teachings, Repentance from Acts that Lead to Death. We hope you enjoy today's teaching, and please remember to head on over to ariseministry.org.uk for all the latest news and upcoming events. And now, over to Philip Edwards for today's teaching. The, the, the key verses that I'll be teaching from are Hebrews 6, verses 1 and 2. In that passage, those couple of verses, there's a list of what the Bible calls elementary teachings They're not elementary teachings about Christianity or about the church. They're elementary teachings about Christ. This this religion that we have is a religion that is a relationship with Jesus Christ. To call it not a religion would be nonsense because Christianity is a religion, but it's a religion based on a relationship. And so these teachings are the basic elementary teachings about Christ, it says. Without these, the indication in Scripture is we can't grow up in God. We can't, as the Scripture puts it here, we can't go on to maturity. Now, it's all right to get started in this Christian life, but we can't stay where we are. We've got to grow up in it. We've got to grow up into Christ, There are six principles. Now, some might say, well, or elementary teaching. Some might say, well, there's there's many more than that. But as I've reflected on it, I I think there are just six. And I think these are vitally important that we understand these. The six come in three sets of two. If we look at them, we'll read them in a minute together what they are. Two of the fundamental elementary teachings get us started in the Christian life, repentance and faith. That gets us started. If you're a Christian to any measure or you've been a Christian sometime, you will have known that repentance played a part and faith played a part. That got you started. Then there's two other, uh, another couple that is to do with baptisms and the laying on of hands. That's really our Christian life as we mature and grow up and go on with Christ. The the baptisms are doorways for us. In all, there are about four baptisms in the New Testament. We'll be just looking at two of them, uh, baptism in water and baptism in the Holy Spirit. They're doorways in. We receive blessing from God through these baptisms. And then the laying on of hands is the impartation of blessing. So it is first the receiving and then the giving out. And your Christian life is like this all the time, receiving and giving, receiving and giving. If we find that we're not receiving, we have nothing to give. And then the last two, the last couple, are things that happen not in this world, but in the next. They are two doctrines. They are two fundamental elementary teachings about what happens as we uh, transition into the next world resurrection from the dead that doesn't happen in this world, and then eternal judgment that does not happen in this world. It happens prior to us going into the next world. It almost brings this world to a close before we step into the next one. So 
These six teachings take us all the way through our Christian life, the entry into Christ, living with Christ, and then transitioning into the next world. Let's read together then this passage. It's Hebrews 6, verses 1 and 2. It says, Therefore, whenever there's a therefore, you should really go back and find what it's there for. And we will do a little bit of that in a minute because we have to go back into chapter 5 because it, it, it takes us into this. But we'll just read this for now. Therefore, let us leave the elementary teaching. So the idea is once we've got them established, we can then move on. So it's important that we get them, establish them, and then leave them, leave the elementary teachings about Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again the foundation. So we never want to have to keep coming back and reinforcing our foundations because we never laid the proper foundations. You'll find that if you try and build on a bad foundation, the building will collapse. It will fall down or the very least, it'll end up like Pisa. So we don't want our Christian lives anything like that. Lay again the foundations, and it lists then the six. Repentance from acts that lead to death, and of faith in God, the two introductory uh, elementary teachings, instructions about baptisms, the laying on of hands, that which we experience in our journey through life, and finally, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. So that's where we're going over the next four weeks. We'll deal with an introduction tonight and we'll deal with repentance. And next week we're going to do with faith. And I brought the laying on of hands before baptisms because I want to do the two baptisms together. So tonight we're going to do uh, an introduction to the whole subject and then uh, repentance from acts that lead to death. In the preceding chapter, chapter 5, the writer introduces yet another problem that beset the Hebrew church. Now, as you read the scriptures, uh, read them as though you are a spectator listening to someone reading them to you. Uh, it's not always good to put yourself in the place where you're being told off or you think God is rebuking you. That's never a healthy thing. So I always read the scriptures thinking, here is somebody who's done something wrong in the past. God is dealing with that, and I'm a spectator looking at it, so I won't make the same mistakes that these people in the past have made. I'm a spectator on the outside. So I can become wise in my life to looking at the scriptures and seeing what's gone wrong in other people's lives rather than think that God is wagging the finger at me because that isn't a healthy thing. If we've always been put down and told off and we feel very guilty all the time, we have a feeling when we read the scriptures that God's wagging his finger at us. He's not. He, he's brought you in as a child and he's trying to grow you up and the examples that he gives are to help you. The problems that the Hebrews were suffering are the problems that we'll see in the church today and you can draw your own opinions from that. I said it's yet another problem because in the book of Hebrews, it's a book of warnings. The book of Hebrews contains five warnings to the Christian and this is actually warning number three of the five. 
So I'm going to read the warning to you. It's found in Hebrews 5, and it's from 11 to 14. And of course, that just leads on into the, the passage in chapter 6. He says this, We have much to say about this, but it is hard to explain because you are slow to learn. In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teachings about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. So he's highlighted here three problems that this, these Hebrew Christians, he's writing to uh, uh, people who, who knew about God, they knew the teachings of God, they started off in this new Christian faith, but, but for some reason, they've started to fall back, started to lose their way. Like I said, there's five warnings that become more and more severe. And my plan is that I'll bring the teaching of the five warnings to you as, as well later on. But we're, we're not dealing with that tonight. So three problems that are highlighted in these verses. He says, first, they had not developed and were acting as infants. He's... He's saying, why haven't you grown up? You've been Christians for so long. How come you haven't developed and grown by this time? He says you should be uh, mature as a Christian, but you're acting and you're conducting yourself just like new converts. There are those in our church today, they're content simply... Um, the thought that their sins are forgiven and they have a hope of heaven is sufficient for them in their Christian life. They don't give themselves to understanding or learning or growing in the things of God. They're simply content with the fact that they know their sins forgiven and they have a hope for heaven in the future. And of course they have. We're not forced to study, to grow, to learn. We can become born again of God's spirit and stay there. And this is one of the warnings that he's giving them. These people sort of, they rest in their attachment to church. They think that going to church is good. It's sufficient. That's what they need to do. They attend the services and they give themselves to the services. Uh, and there's a general idea of being a Christian, being a good person, being kind. Well, all those things are good. I'm not condemning any of them because Growing on to maturity is far much more than simply attending church. It goes a lot deeper than this. Maybe this, uh, all that we're going through in the nation at this time with the epidemic and everything, maybe some of those people, their lives will be shaken a little bit uh, because they haven't been able to go to church. They haven't been able to go to the services or attach themselves to the things of God like this. And maybe there's a bit of a shaking going on. I can't imagine that after not being allowed to go to church for a good 12 months, this isn't part of the shaking that God would do to, to bring about change in his church. Anyway, I'm not seeking to be prophetic there, just thinking 
what's going on, God? What's going to happen when this, all this is over? They have no real interest, these people, in the, in the deeper things of God, uh, enjoying their Christian life to, to a degree, but nothing seems to work out. It's not because it's too difficult to understand the things of God. In fact, spiritual things, they are ministered to our spirit. If, if it was to do with intellect, it would be very unfair because only the intellectual and the clever could grow in the things of God. So actually, you don't even have to be able to read to grow in the things of God. You don't have to be particularly smart or bright because the teachings of God come to the spirit of a man. Sometimes we get our heads in the way and we can't understand what God's trying to teach us because of our heads, because of our intellect, because of how much we read and what we think we know. We don't allow the spirit of God to speak into our hearts and teach us. So um, maybe that's a warning for some of us. You know, if we think we're really smart, uh, (laughs) I think we're really smart. We need to just ease up a bit and let the spirit of God teach us. The second warning there was when they should have been having solid food, these Christians were still drinking milk. Now, milk here equates to the elementary truths, the the basic things. What is milk? Milk is food that's been digested by somebody else, regurgitated and given to you to drink. I'm sorry about that. It sounds a bit messy and horrible, but that's what it is. It's as though you can't eat the food yourself, so somebody chews it for you and somehow passes it through their system, and then you drink it because that's about all you can do because you can't digest. That's the picture that he's given here. Now, as a teacher, I have to be very careful what I say here. See, there's, as I study and I give you the food, you're eating something that I've digested. Okay, now, I'm not trying to put myself out of a job because I want to keep digesting it and giving it to you. But there must come a time when you bite off a chunk yourself, you understand, and you chew it yourself. So uh, all I can ever do is to supplement you. It's like I might get you started on an idea or I might help to plug some holes. But in the end... You've got to get the the food yourself and eat it yourself and digest God's word yourself because that's where it tastes. You get the most taste out of it, the most goodness out of it. In nature, uh, we simply grow up automatically. We grow from childhood into adulthood, and it's an automatic thing. We're small, we eat and we grow, uh, our mind grows and everything else. But with the Christian, that's not the case. With the Christian, you come in as a child, but you can stay a child all the time. So just because someone's been a long time in the church or they're old in years, they're still possibly could be children in spiritual matters or the things of God. They remain as children. It's possible for a Christian to remain a child the whole of his Christian life, never to grow up, never to want to take hold of the deeper things of God. There are people that always need help and can't give help. 
children always need help. Help me, mom. Help me do this. Help me do that. But then as you grow up, you start to help others. And so the, the mature Christian goes from being helped to being a helper. Now, there are times when we all need help, but we transition from being helped to being a helper. The reason that Christians don't grow or have a reluctance to grow is because there's a tremendous sacrifice that has to be paid. Uh, children are often, well, they should be just cared for without real sacrifices being made, that everything is done for them, everything is provided for them, because as they grow up, they realize they step into an adult world where they have to discipline themselves and they have to make sacrifices. We are told to forsake all and follow Jesus. If we refuse to do that, then we refuse to grow up. We will remain infants. To be a Christian whose only thought is to be safe, to have attained some assurance of salvation, is very short-sighted. Uh, we are safe. I don't personally, and I can teach on this a bit later, uh, I don't believe one can lose one's salvation. So I think I'm really safe. And uh, we could look at that subject and you might have to think through that and work that one yourself. We're safe and we have an assurance of salvation. We're God's child. It's, it's a bit like the, the man, uh, the story of the talents where he gives one, one and one, two and another man five talents, and then the one with five goes and doubles it, the one with two doubles it. But the man who was given the one talent, he hides it. He just wants to play safe. He knows he's secure, as it were, and so when the master returns, he just brings out the one talent. Now, Jesus is quite strong with him. He calls him wicked, and he calls him lazy. And so we have to be careful if we want to stay as children, we would, we would need to expect to receive that harsh rebuke from the Lord. Have you just been wicked and lazy, not bothering? So maturity in the Christian life comes from the discipline that God demands. We grow up into the things of God, just as in the natural, a child's limbs and body become strong and grows through exercise so in the spiritual through the spiritual disciplines we become strong through obedience to God and holy living we will grow into spiritual maturity the third warning that we see here is that they had never understood the elementary truths and therefore still needed teaching when they should have had the ability to teach others. All Christians are to learn the word of God, the teaching of God's word, so they're able to teach others. Now, this is important that we consider this because you can go to church and listen to a sermon and read a book and feel you've taken something in, but then challenge yourself by saying, now, could I get another convert in the room who didn't know this and be able to teach them the things that I've learned. Now, you need to put yourself through that exercise because all what you learned, maybe over several hours of taking information in, you only have three minutes to give out. 
because you're not, you haven't learned it sufficiently so you can teach on it. Now, I don't think he's saying all you should be standing on a platform or standing in a pulpit and preaching and teaching, but he's saying you should study something sufficiently so you could sit down with a new convert and you could teach them one-on-one -on -one what this subject is all about. Could you teach about repentance? Could you teach about what it is to have faith in God? Could you teach what it is, the ministry of laying on of hands or the baptisms? So it's important that when we study, we don't just study and read and think, oh, I think I've got that. And then next week it's all gone again. We need to study so we could teach others. For me, that's all I've ever done. Whenever I read a Christian book or anything, I think, how can I communicate that to someone else? Now, that's a bit unfair because I am a teacher. So I always read and study with that in mind. How could I break this down? How could I make it simple so that people could understand and, and benefit from it? But all of us should study to the extent that we could communicate this truth to others. There is a number of Christians whose... Um, their Christian life consists of, of always learning. They're always reading. They're always studying. They're always getting more and more and more information. Sermons and books are an absolute delight to them. They might listen to them online. They might listen in all sorts of ways. What they're doing is they're simply feeding their intellect. They're being fed and fed and fed and fed. Now, all Bible teaching, as far as I'm concerned, is practical. It's not simply to gain knowledge and understanding, but it's so that it might change our lives. All Christian teaching should be practical. Once you hear it and see it and listen to it, you say, how does that apply to my life? Now, I think good Bible teaching shows you the application of the word of God, not simply filling your head with understanding and knowledge. So we study to practice what it says, the parables, the teachings of Jesus. What were the practical things that he was really seeking to meet, communicate that we could inculcate, take into our lives and put into practice and live more like Jesus? That's the important thing. We study to be able, as I said, to explain to others, taking a truth on board, so understanding it that we could teach it to others. And we find by understanding like that, it transforms us on the inside. We study to help others to grow in their Christian life. So the failure of Christians to grow is displayed in the analogy we have here as uh, infants growing up. That, that's, that is criticism of, of them. You're, you're just children, you're babies. You're not taking this seriously enough so you can grow up. Then he, he changes the analogy when we come into chapter six. In the sixth chapter, the subject remains the same, not growing up in Christ, but remaining babies as it were. But he's changed it from not infants growing up into mature adults, but the illustration is a foundation of the building. It says in Hebrews 6 and 1, not laying again the foundation. So the first analogy is a child drinking milk, being a child, not growing up. This one is a foundation that is laid that can support a building, a structure, an edifice for God. 
So the, the idea of growth and development is uh, pursued here. In chapter five, Christians remain infants because they never understood the elementary truths, it says. In chapter six, we're told we go on to maturity, and this is only possible when we understand the elementary teachings. So the baby receives truths, the idea that things are imparted to a baby from its parents. They're not so much studying, but it's going on around them, and the truth is being built into them as they see it, as they live amongst it. But as we go on, there is an element of teaching and receiving teaching that is necessary. It says of the early church, what they devoted themselves to first was the apostles' doctrine, second, fellowship, third, the breaking of bread, and fourth, to prayer. You must have doctrine first for the other things to make any sense at all, to be able to build them. Now, you would say, well, I'd expect you to say that if you're a Bible teacher, how important doctrine is. But without the teaching and the doctrine, we can't build or grow anything in our lives. So the fundamental truth of our faith is important if we're going to bring, build a strong and a secure foundation and go on to maturity. The first two elementary truths are the factors, I think, that govern our entrance into salvation. If you don't know these truths, you could end up thinking you've come into salvation, but you haven't. Now, I don't want to scare anyone, and I'll almost convince you you're not born again. That's not the purpose of what I'm doing. What I want to say is, listen, you can tick these things off and say, okay, I understand that now. I have to get the principles right. But that's true of anything. If we don't get the principles of any discipline right, it's hard to go on to learn more and more things. Whatever you're studying, whatever you're doing, anything practical or academic, whether you know, you have to learn the basic things. Do you remember those times tables we did at school? Oh, Lord. I remember sitting there in my primary school, terrified of my maths teacher because we had to go home and learn all these tables. Well, you see, in later life, they served as a great purpose. Of course, laying the foundation in any discipline is vital and important to grow in that with any sense of, you know, maturity. So it's the same with the Christian things. You must get those basic things in. Sometimes we have this expression that to come to Christ, all you have to do is believe, only believe. Yes, but only believe what? Okay, now, there is a truth in all we do is believe. I understand that. That is, we're justified through faith alone. But, but we need to know what it is we believe. It's important, you know, sometimes you say, well, uh, just come to Christ and just, just say these three things or just, just say these words after me. I don't have a problem with that. It's what goes on after that. The foundation must be laid. They must realize what they have believed. They must understand what they who or who they put faith in. They must understand what repentance is and, and how the whole thing works and hangs together. A strong foundation will, as I've been saying, will support a strong building. A weak foundation won't. Now, I was a civil engineer for about 10 years. So I do know something about foundations and uh, things like that. So uh, I, I tell you, if you don't build a, a foundation that's strong enough, 
then the building will collapse. If you, if you don't make it strong and secure enough, or even just a light foundation, you can only put a few, a few floors on it. If you want to go high, you have to, you have to go down very deep into the ground. Now, Paul uses the infant analogy in, uh, in 1 Corinthians 3 and verses 1 and 2. He wants to go to Corinth and he wants to teach them some meat. He wants to preach them and have them grow up. But when he gets there, he says, I can't give you meat. I can't preach the more mature things because you're still like children. So he's using that same illustration there in 1 Corinthians. It says in 1 Corinthians 3, 1 and 2, brothers, I could not address you as spiritual, but as worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not yet ready. So sometimes um, you need to know something of the congregation, the people you're actually preaching to. Are they children or are they mature? What is, what is the majority? I think it's marvellous how the Holy Spirit gives you one sermon that seems to touch 100 people in the room are all different levels of spiritual maturity. That can only be the Holy Spirit who does that. How can you prepare something that can feed a, a child and feed an adult at the same time? It's, it would seem impossible, but, but to the Holy Spirit, it's not an impossible thing. So Paul is going there to Corinth, but he realizes there are things going on in the church that he's, they're children, they're not adults. And then he goes on to show the telltale signs that they are just children and they're not really adults. Some of the traits in their lives, it says in 1 Corinthians 3 and 3, you are still worldly, he says, for since there is jealousy amongst you, you're, you are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere men? So what he's seeing in the church is they're jealous, just like children are jealous. Now, um, Paul had an expectation that they would have grown up. If they hadn't grown up, well, of course, they would still be children. So when I say um, he's bringing correction, I don't want you to see it as always being told off or rebuked because we have to start as children in these Christian things and we have to be taught and we have to grow. So it's not a criticism that you're a child. It's not a criticism at all because we've lived in a world where we've been jealous all the time of other things. We, we just come into Christ. We're still like that, but we have to learn how to grow and to develop out of these things. What is, what is jealousy? It's a desire to have what other people have, as though we must have that. We want it for ourselves. One of the telltale signs of being young, infant, not an adult. Again, in uh, 3 and 3, he says it twice, or I've written it out twice. You're still worldly since there is quarrelling amongst you. Oh, uh, I've been around church a long time. I tell you, I have seen some quarrelling in churches. Oh, my Lord. Uh, living through great splits in churches because of the quarrelling that goes on. It's only a sign that they're babies. They haven't grown up into maturity. Strife, contention, expressions of enmity between different Christians. Uh, and, and all through Christian history, as you read through it, you're thinking, oh, my Lord, this is the church, and they're out there killing one another, destroying one another. 
you're thinking, they're just children. They need to grow up. 1 Corinthians 3 and 4 says this, For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are they not mere men? Oh, we like our favorites, don't we? We like this one, and we don't like that one, and we haven't got, you know, oh, uh, he's preaching this week. Oh, you know, that's going to be terrible. Uh, I remember when I was pastoring, we had a church bulletin, and what we'd put on the bulletin is who was preaching the next week. We learned not to do that very quickly. Because if they didn't like the person who was preaching, they just wouldn't bother coming. So there you've got to stop all that nonsense. Why? Because they're just being childish. If you go and expect God to speak through you, I tell you, somebody you might not think is a very good preacher. He can speak right into your heart by the word of God. You just have to give yourself to be attentive to it. See, we're all servants of Christ. We were saved and God assigned us a job to do. And so we do whatever he's given us to do. And so we mustn't seek to divide the church at all. Do Best say nothing than say something that's divisive within the church. Best to just hold it back to ourselves. We sometimes allow the appreciation of a minister um, direct us and we become spiritually proud in that ministry um, it's it's not something that's so prevalent today but people are very proud of their denominations proud of being pentecostal or proud of being brethren or or proud of being church of england or listen that's that's there's no place for that that's childish we need to stop doing that we need to appreciate one another love the strengths of the different groups of christians and just don't seek to divide the church, but to strengthen it. There's a last one there. It's given to us in Hebrews. It's a lack of discernment. He says in that passage we read, but solid food is for the mature who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. Constantly, constantly reading and applying the word of God to our lives, taking it on board, not just listening to it, but building it into our lives so we can distinguish between good and evil. If we see these traits in our lives, it is God saying we need to give ourselves a little bit more so we grow up and become mature in the things of God. The scriptures are not there to criticize you or condemn you. The scriptures are there to warn you and to give you guidance and to inspire you to move on from where you are. Finally, in this first introductory uh, part here, I want to turn to the actual uh, similar teaching of, of Christ himself. Um, we read about this in Matthew 7. Uh, the emphasis with Christ is that we lay a solid foundation a good biblical foundation in our lives. So what Paul is doing, he's taking this teaching of Christ and he's applying it in his own way. That's it. Well, I, I'm assuming Paul did write the book of Hebrews, but there's, there's argument about that. So I shouldn't really say the author of Hebrews because we don't really know who wrote it. But let's look at that passage in Matthew 7, where Jesus says exactly the same things. He says, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice 
is like a wise man who builds his house on a rock. See, hearing the words and putting them into practice, simply to hear the words and to know what Jesus has said or to know what Paul has said or to know what the scriptures have said is not sufficient. We take the word of God and it must become practice in our lives. He says, the rain came down and the streams rose and the winds blew and beat against the house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. The rock is the word of God. Our foundation must be built on God's word. That's why we need to receive it, to understand it, and to build our lives on it. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice, see the importance of putting them into practice. You must say, and if you see yourself not able to do it, you must ask God to give you the grace to put the word of God into practice. Uh, to put them into practice is like a foolish man who builds his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the wind blew and beat against the house, and it fell with a great crash. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowd were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority and not as the teachers of the law. See, the teachers of the law were always wagging their fingers. He was always telling them off for what they had or hadn't done to keep the law of God. I've said this many times. It's not my job to stand before you and wag the finger and tell you off. I'm only here to excite you about God's word, to point some things to you. And it's your determination then to lay hold of the scriptures and to put them into practice. What are the things that Jesus taught on then? We see, we see that uh, um, if it was Paul that wrote Hebrews, he laid six foundational teachings. What were the foundational teachings that Jesus uh, established for us? Well, we find them in the Sermon on the Mount. He said that we were salt and light in the world. He said we were to keep the laws of God. He said we were to love one another. He gives us guidance about marriage and how we should relate to one another. Generosity, the life of prayer, not worrying, not judging other people, living a sacrificial life. They were, so we see Jesus did the same thing. He laid foundations and he said, now you need to understand and put these into practice in your life. The same thing that uh, we read about in Hebrews 6. The storms of life, Jesus said, will come. So Paul is saying the same sort of things. He says, listen, unless you've laid the foundation to your lives properly, when the storms of life come, because they're not established, there will be a crash. There will be a fall. Now, if a building, if your life collapses, to go and rebuild it again is very difficult. Now, some of you might have testimonies of that where you started to build your life and it fell apart and how hard and difficult it was to start all over again. Or perhaps you simply patched up as you were going along, hoping you could do enough remedial work to keep the building going. That's not good either. So it's important at the very start, a good foundation is laid 
So it will go strong and keep going strong and go on to maturity. Right, what I want to do now is I want to take you to the first of the foundations uh, stones, the first elementary teachings, and go straight on into that. And I'm going to deal with repentance, repentance from acts that lead to death. We have a, an understanding of repentance that if we apply it to scripture, it is wrong. So when we think of repenting, we think sometimes if we've offended someone and done something wrong, we go to that person and we say, well, we can admit that we did it, or then we can say we are sorry, we can ask for forgiveness, and we can move on. Now, we somehow end up with thinking, when we repent, we have to do the same thing with God. That somehow, when we do something wrong, God is expecting us to say sorry, tell him we won't do it again, and try our best not to do it again. But when we do it again, we come back to him again, and we say, we're sorry, um, uh, I'm not very good at this, and so please forgive me, and then we come back again and again. Well, that's not biblical repentance. Now, there's nothing wrong in saying sorry, and there's nothing wrong in asking God to forgive you, but it's not repentance. So what is repentance? What does the Bible mean when it says that we're to repent? Somehow you, uh, well, at times you have to dive into the Greek to find out what the Greek word means and then get the exact meaning. Now, I'm no Greek scholar, I'm no Hebrew scholar, uh, but I can look at a word and, and I can get the meaning of it. Uh, so the, the word for repent is the word metanonia or something like that. Uh, excuse my uh, pronunciation of Greek, it must be terrible. It's spelled like this, M-E-T-A-N-O-E-I-N. And it means, it means to change one's mind, to change one's mind. So repentance has very little to say with saying sorry. It's about changing one's mind. Now, when you change your mind and you felt you've offended God, it's all right to say sorry to God, but that's not what God's looking for. He's not looking for a sorry. He's looking for a change of mind. Having realized that something is wrong, it's offensive to God, that you stop doing it. See, it's possible to say sorry. It's possible to shed tears, but you haven't repented. You might, you might have felt really bad about what you did, but you never really repented. Now, God, you will see as we look through this, God requires repentance of us. He demands repentance of us. He demands not that we say sorry or we feel bad about what we've done, but we have a change of mind. True repentance is an inner change of mind resulting in an outward turning back or turning one's back to face in a completely new direction and to move in a new direction. Saying sorry to God is not repentance, it's saying sorry to God. Asking God to forgive you, it's not repentance, it's asking God to forgive you. Now, without, without true repentance, uh, saying sorry doesn't mean anything. 
uh, Dan was saying at the beginning of there, he, he played rugby and perhaps that's why I'm a similar shape to Dan, although I'm a bit bigger than Dan now, but I played rugby as well. And I remember I played with this old wily Irishman. I used to play in the front row. If you know anything about rugby, that's where all the heavy uglies are. Okay, so that was me. Uh, I like to think I was a pretty ugly in the front row. Never mind. Okay, so anyway, I remember playing with this old wily Irishman who was a prop and I was a hooker. That might mean nothing to you at all. And um, I did something. I did something wrong. And I, I said to him, oh, oh, I'm sorry. He said, Philip, don't say sorry. Just never do it again. And I, I took it on board and I thought, I think this man is a bit spiritual here because, you see, Sorry doesn't sorry doesn't do anything. What's that about? It's like just don't do it again. And so, God is very. He was more merciful than my wily Irish prop. But but it, the the issue is the same. It's like God's not particularly interested in all our sorries. He wants to know that we're determined not to do it again. We've turned our back on it. We've got a new way of thinking about what God thinks. We turn our back on that and we walk in a new direction in our lives. So I'm not saying don't repent of your sins. What I'm saying is it isn't sufficient to say sorry. It isn't sufficient to say, God, forgive me. What is sufficient is that you turn in your thinking and move in a new direction. If you say sorry, that's fine. We're very good in England, aren't we, as English people, if you're English, saying please and thank you and sorry all the time for everything. I mean, we never stop saying please, sorry, and thank you. So it, it could be a cultural thing, but it's about changing your mind, moving in a new direction, realizing that what you're doing, the way you're living, the way you're thinking and acting is offensive to God. And we decide by an act of our will, never to do it again. So repentance is more about our mind making a decision than our emotions and what they feel. The greatest example of this probably is the story of the prodigal son. Now, um, the prodigal son is my second uh, most favorite um, uh, parable. The first one, I think, is the sower and the seed, because Jesus says, if you don't understand this parable, you'll never understand any parable. So I go for the sower and the seed as the first parable, but this one must be the second, uh, to me, the most important one. So I want to read you those verses found in Luke and chapter 15. We're going to read from 11 down to 21. I'm sure you all know the story and you're very familiar with it, but it's important we open the scriptures as I, I want to most weeks and just examine the word of God together. So this is Luke 15, verse 11. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had and he set off for a distant country and there squandered his wealth on wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country. He sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill the, his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating but no one gave him anything. When he came 
to his senses. Something happened up here. He came to his senses. He said, how many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father. He made a decision. He had walked away from God. Now he was going to walk back to God. And I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and he went to his father. He started to move in the opposite direction. He came to his senses. He made a decision. There's no, there's no sense about him feeling sorry or anything. I know he prepared a little speech, but, but that wasn't the, what the father was waiting for, the speech. He, he goes back to his father. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son. He threw his arms around him and he kissed him. Now, before the son could launch into his speech, the father had already loved him and kissed him and embraced him. There was no sense of, I'm sorry, please, will you forgive me? It does not exist in the story. Then he sort of launches into a speech about it. And the way I read it, his father seems to ignore the speech. Before he's even finished the speech, he says, oh, bring the shoes and bring the ring and bring the coat. So to me, that is a story or it highlights or shows us uh, what true repentance is. What we read in that story is he turned his back on his father. He turned his back on his father's home. He put distance between himself, his home and his father. And he started to waste his life. Whatever he had done would have been a waste of his life. And scripture says, as I pointed out there, he came to his senses. He started to think up here, I've made a big mistake. I should go back to my father. It only makes sense to me to do that. And so at the point that he made the decision is the point that repentance took place. Repentance didn't happen when he got to his father. Repentance happened when he made the decision to turn around and go back to his father. Luke 15, 18 says, I will set out and go back to my father. See, when you're doing something and God points out to you that thing is wrong, what you say is, not necessarily, oh, I'm sorry, God, please forgive me, God. But God, I will never do that again. I won't do that again. I won't do that again because it offends you. And that's not what you want me to do. That, that is repentance. Biblical repentance. It never says that the prodigal sat there feeling sorry for himself. It says he came to a decision, and after coming to the decision, he acted on it. He got up and acted on it. Now, you say, well, can I just say I'll never do it again? Of course you can. Why? Because the Holy Spirit lives in you. That's why you don't have to sin. 
You can make a decision between you and God. God, I'm never going to do that again. I am truly repenting of that. I'm having a new mind, a new decision. And I know that by the grace of God, the spirit of God that lives in me, I don't have to do this again. Now, that's why in the Old Testament, it says God winked at sin. There you go. God, what are you doing winking at sin? They didn't have the power and the grace within to be able to turn from their sin. But we can. We don't have excuses for our sin. We can make a decision to get up and to walk back to God. He acted on his decision. He went back to his father and his home. He turned his back on the life that he was living and moved in a totally new direction. He made an inward decision that was followed by an outward act, a change of direction, a walking back to God. The first essential in salvation, if we're going to be saved and receive God's forgiveness and salvation, the first thing that we have to do is repent we have to make a decision to turn around. You see what I mean when I said in the beginning, there could be young Christians or new converts. They don't have to be young in age. I've made that quite clear. They're told all they have to do is come to Jesus and he'll forgive them of all their sins. Well, that's not the actual truth. The truth is they have to repent. They have to turn around in their lives. Now, you might not preach it like that as an evangelist, but listen, Lesson number two is let's deal with repentance because some people think they can come into the Christian church, they can add Jesus onto the deal and carry on living exactly like they've been living. That's not possible. Now, you don't want to spend the first two, three, four years doing what you think it's all about. We need to understand the foundational teachings so we get it right from the start. The first thing then if we want to be reconciled to God, is that we must repent. Now, it's important I um, talk about uh, a word here that comes up in the Bible. In some translations, the word is, is translated repent, but it has nothing to do with repentance. It's about remorse, feeling anguish over our sin. Now, I say this because you might have done something and you feel really bad about what you've done, but you haven't made the decision to walk away from that and change your life so you can act differently. That's, that's remorse. That's not repentance. You feel sorry about what you've done. Repentance is turning in such a way in your life that you will not do that thing ever again, and you will set circumstances around your life to enable you to do it. So let's look at the scriptures then, or the verse that can distinguishes remorse from repentance. In Matthew 27 and verse 3, this is how the authorized version writes this. Matthew 27 and verse 3. Talking about Judas after he had betrayed the Lord Jesus Christ, this is what it says in the authorized. Then Judas, which had betrayed him, that's Jesus, when he saw that he was condemned, that Jesus was condemned, he repented himself and brought again the 30 pieces of silver and took it back to the religious people of the day. See, he uses the word he repented. I'll read what it says in the NIV version. Now, it's not that the NIV is per perfect and the authorized is imperfect. 
Sometimes the NIV has not got as good translations as the authorized. So we have to be careful. It says this in the NIV, when Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse. So what had got hold of Judas was not repentance, was remorse. So the word translated repent should have been translated remorse or anguish. I believe Judas experienced intense anguish. He felt terrible, terrible for what he had done. He had some realization of it, but it did not lead to him having a change of mind. He didn't change his mind. He could not repent because God did not grant him the ability to repent. He could not find repentance. He was just filled with remorse because the very next day he went and hung himself. So he couldn't deal with the sin because God didn't grant him the ability he didn't grant him repentance, so he just felt so awful for what he had done. He simply went on the course that he had chosen, and he killed himself. He could not change his course. He had already gone too far. So it is possible if we keep rejecting and rejecting and rejecting and rejecting what God is saying, that God might say, I won't offer you then repentance. He says in, in Genesis, my spirit will not always strive with you. Uh, he was likened to, you know, before the flood where he was striving with men to turn because they wouldn't. They just wax more and more evil. There is a, a danger, not that we can lose our salvation, because I've said I don't believe that we can. But if, if God talks to us about something, and we hear him, but we don't choose to respond. And he talks to us again and again and again and again. He might stop talking to us about that thing. So if he doesn't talk to us and offer us repentance, it might be difficult in the future to actually stop and change and turn around. Now, you need to think about these um, and ponder these things in your mind. When he went to the Last Supper with the Lord and the other 11 apostles, remember that Christ washed his feet like all the 11? Do you think Christ was appealing to him to repent? I believe repentance was still possible. And then when he sat, or they lay on uh, couches to eat, uh, Jesus took the bread and he, he dipped it in the, the, the meal and he offered it to him. It was like treating him like an, an honored guest. He, he had another opportunity to do. And it was then that Jesus said to him, well, you better go do what you've planned to do. And it says, at that moment, Satan entered into his heart as, as though Christ was appealing to him, appealing to him, appealing to him. But he made that decision. And now there was no way back. He had set himself a course of action and there was no way back. Now, that is a very rare thing to happen. So I don't want you to go away examining your life and thinking, oh, well, have I done something similar to this? That's not what I'm saying. Remember, we look at the scriptures and they are 
a way in which God shows us things and we stand on the outside looking at the illustrations that he's given us, giving us these illustrations because he wants to warn us. So from that point, there was no turning back for Judas. He had to follow that course of action. The door of repentance was closed to him. We read a similar thing, don't we, in Romans chapter 1, where we see that man has turned against God and he allows them to get deeper and deeper and deeper into the sins of which they choose to do without responding to his appeal to come back to himself and eventually get themselves into a right mess. A second similar example to this, uh, but it's not so severe and it's not so serious, is the story of uh, Esau. Remember the story of Esau and Jacob in the Old Testament? Uh, Esau was uh, a guy that loved the outdoor life, hunting. He was sort of a man's man. And we know Jacob was more around the home and he liked cooking and, and home comforts. And we see one day that Esau comes home and uh, he smells his brothers cooking this stew. And, uh, oh, he says, I would give anything for that. And Jacob was a real twister. And he says, oh, OK, I'll give you some of this lovely stew. Um, will you give me your birthright? Oh, he says, I'm not interested in my birthright. Of course, just give me the stew. Come on. But when he said those things, they were important, what he said. What he was saying was, I don't care about my birthright. The birthright, because he was the eldest son, mean he would receive a double portion of blessing in his life. He would have been the blessed as the eldest, but he despised the blessings of God. And so later we see that Esau, when his brother cheats him out of the birthright, which he technically had given him and said that he could have, uh, he was really upset about the whole thing. And he sought to regain the blessing. Remember when he realized his brother had cheated him, uh, he wanted to, to, to get that back. And it says this in uh, Hebrews 12 and 17 afterwards, that's uh, as he, uh, as you know, when he, that's Esau, wanted to inherit his blessing to get the birthright, he was rejected. He could bring about no change of mind, though he sought the blessing with tears. There was no way back for him. He had gone beyond the point where he could now get it. Even though he cried and he was sincere and filled with remorse and anguish, he could not get his birthright back. Why is it so important as Christians that we get repentance right? It's funny in these six foundational teachings, the first teaching we have is repentance what is so important about repentance? Repentance will always precede faith. Without true repentance, you cannot have biblical faith that can save you. There must be true repentance. For God to come and help you in your life, to save you, to grant you faith to be saved, you must first come with repentance. It's, it's a bit strange. We can't approach God, so God first 
approaches us. So we find ourselves listening uh, to a friend speaking, or we find ourselves sitting in a meeting or reading some Christian literature, and God is approaching us. God is saying to us, I want to break into your life. I want to build a relationship with you. I want, I want myself to become real to you. But before this can ever happen, he says, you must repent. You must come to me. You must turn around and come to me. And when you do that, then I will grant you faith. So it's like we do the first thing. We approach God, but we can't approach God. So first God enlightens us or shows us some truth. But then we must come in repentance before we can receive faith. You see, if people aren't taught properly, they say, listen, listen, they say, come to Jesus, all your problems will be solved, it'll be wonderful, everything will be sorted out, it'll be marvelous, just come along and tell Jesus you're sorry for your sins and be born again. That's terrible. That doesn't, that doesn't explain anything. That is so not the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is so not the gospel. The gospel is about repentance and about faith. But we first have to come with repentance before we can come with faith. Let me expand on that. If you're going to read through the four gospels, before you read about the ministry of Jesus, that he came to bring the kingdom to this earth, you first have to read about the ministry of John the Baptist. The ministry of John the Baptist always precedes the ministry of Christ. You only have to read a few, uh, a few verses into each of the four Gospels and you'll find out exactly what I mean. First, John has to come. John has to come and teach the people, preach to the people a message of repentance. For them to have faith in God, they must first receive a message of repentance. So before Christ can ever come and manifest the kingdom of God and bring salvation to them, the people have to come first with repentance. Without them repenting, without John the Baptist's ministry, Jesus can't come. So it's as where I said God has to speak to us and open our eyes. John the Baptist is coming to the people of God and he's opening their eyes and he's telling them, you all need to repent. Only when you've repented and come to God can God come to you. John the Baptist was really the last of the Old Testament prophets, wasn't he? There's a sense in he should have been in the Old Testament because he was in the New Testament because he was the last of the old before Jesus would come. But his ministry was like an Old Testament prophet. He was dressed like an Old Testament prophet. He was breathing thunder and fire and smoke at the people, just like an Old Testament prophet. And Jesus says to him, this man, John, he is the greatest. But listen, the least of any of you in the kingdom is greater than John the Baptist because we are born again of the spirit of God. We are of a different, a new order. John the Baptist was of an old order, a fantastic man. I'm not taking anything from him, but he was like an Old Testament prophet. So the New Testament starts with a call 
before Jesus can come and say anything, there's a call for repentance. Sir John's call of repentance is in keeping with all the pattern of the Old Testament prophets. I've just picked on one. It's in Jeremiah 29. You'll know the verses, but you might not have realized the pattern that we see here. The children of Israel have been in captivity in Babylon for 70 years. They were in captivity for 70 years because they broke some of the laws of God. And for every law they broke, they were put in ca captivity for a year. So the idea is after 70 years of captivity, God will come and release them. It says this in Jeremiah 29.10. This is what the Lord says. So remember, the Lord speaks first. The Lord says, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my gracious promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, and plans to give you hope and a future. So if we liken it to us, God comes to us and says, listen, I have a plan for you. I have a plan to prosper you and to bless you and to give you a future. You go, wonderful, let's have it. Oh, no, no, let's read on. Then he says, after he's declared what he's going to do, he says, then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me when you... Uh, you will find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. So he first appears. We come in repentance and it says we seek him with all of our heart. We turn away from this old way of living. We come to him. And this is what he says. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back from captivity. See, to this point, the Lord has still hidden himself. He has spoken, but he expects us to come in repentance, to come to him, and then he, he reveals himself. And this is what happened at your salvation. He says, I will gather you from all the nations and the places where I have banished you, declares the Lord, and I'll bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. So God speaks to us. The only way that God is going to come to us is that we come in repentance. We turn from our old life. We just say, Lord, I turn away from all of that. And now I come to you. And it's because we come to him. Then he comes to us. James 4 and 8 says this. He says, come near to God and then he'll come near to you. God doesn't come near to you first. He calls to you from a distance, and then you come. Let's go back to the prodigal. How come the prodigal woke up one day and he came to his senses? Because I think the God was calling to the prodigal all the time. Prodigal, wake up and come to your senses. You come to me, and I will have a future for your life. And so he wakes up, and he makes the movements back. Without making the movement to God, God can't give us salvation. He can't bless us. We have to come in repentance to him. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. You double-minded. 
you have two minds. One is to do what you want to do, and the other is to come back to me. He says, you're double-minded. Are you going to come back to me or stay where you are? Prodigal son, are you going to stay with the pigs or are you going to come back to me? Don't be double-minded. And so with our mind, we come back to God. Mark 1, 3 and 4 says, A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight paths for him. So this was the message of John the Baptist, wasn't it? A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way of the Lord and make straight paths for him. And so John came baptizing in the desert region and preaching a baptism of repentance. First, the nation had to repent before Jesus could come. A baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. We see this pattern established time and time and time again in Scripture. Let me take you through some examples just in the Gospels. In Mark 1, 14 and 15, this is the ministry of Jesus. After John was put in prison... After John had finished preaching the message of repentance, Jesus could now come. John's message was only for a a matter of months. He preached a message of repentance because that had to be preached before the Messiah could come. Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said, the kingdom of God is near repent and believe the good news. Jesus' message, his first message, wasn't believe in me. His first message was repent, turn away, then you can believe in me. Without turning, there is no believing. Without turning, there is no following. Without turning from our sin, we cannot change our lives. It's not possible. There has to be the repentance. In Luke 24, 46 and 47, this is the Great Commission. He told them, this is what is written. The Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day and repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. So what is the message that the church takes to the world? It isn't believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's not the first message. The first message is repent, turn around. There is no believing in Jesus unless you repent, unless you turn, faith will not be offered to you. Repentance and then forgiveness. For God to forgive man's sins, he must first change his mind about sin, about what he thinks about God. He must change. Acts 2 and 38. This is Peter's message on Pentecost, remember? Peter replied, well, he was responding to a crowd that had been obviously challenged in their heart with Peter's message. And they said, brothers, what shall we do then? We've done a terrible thing. We've crucified the Lord. And he says this. Peter replied, repent, repent, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. So he he preached to them a message of repentance, a message of turning. 
Acts 20 and 21. This is Paul speaking to the church at Ephesus. He says, I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Unless you go through repentance, faith cannot follow. It's not true biblical faith. One has to repent. One has to turn in one's life. Paul's message is the same. Repentance before faith. So repentance precedes believing. It precedes forgiveness. It precedes baptism. It precedes faith. First, we must make an inward decision to turn. And like I've said in this particular passage where our key verses are Hebrews 6, 1 and 2, the order uh, is first repent, repent, and then have faith in God. Without true biblical repentance, faith alone is simply an, an empty profession, an empty profession. God knows that before we can actually move on in God, there has to be a turning in our lives, a turning away from the old and a turning towards the new. Uh, we, we seem to offer people a message of salvation that simply says, come to God and everything will be all right. It doesn't matter. Just turn. No, we have to turn our back on our former way of living. As I said, the simplification of the gospel can be taken too far. Only believe is not the message of Christ. Christ and his apostles preached repent and believe. Leaving out repentance is both misleading and it misrepresents God. People, like I said, can think, I'll keep carrying on, do what I'm doing. I'll just add Jesus to it. You can't. You have to turn in your life. Paul tells us in Acts 17 and 30, in the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands, he commands all people everywhere to repent. See, I believe this is, uh, I believe, when I say I believe, you know what I mean, it means you don't have to believe this. Okay, this is the conclusions that I've come to. Okay, prior to the new covenant, God's righteousness was based on faith. It was based on faith. They, they, were, they were given uh, or granted righteousness because of their faith. He understood how impossible it was for people to repent, to turn from their sin, to stop sinning. He understood how difficult it was. But now we have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. God no longer overlooks sin. He takes it all into account. Now, he took account of it before, but it didn't hinder people coming to him. But now our sin does. To continue in our sin and not to turn from it, it hinders us. And so he's saying, listen, you can turn from your sin now. You can repent. You don't have to sin because of the new covenant that I've created for you through Christ. So through the power of the Holy Spirit, we actually can repent and turn. It says in here that we are repent to repent, not simply repent, but it says in this Hebrews passage, we are to repent from acts that lead to death. 
uh, if you look in your margin, it says we are to turn away from rituals. Now, remember, he's speaking mostly to a Jewish congregation, and uh, they probably had rituals by which they thought they pleased God. And maybe in their lives, they would, they would fall back into these rituals, um, uh, um, sticking to the laws of God or animal sacrifices or Sabbath observance or washing or eating rules and regulations. They thought if they did this as well, somehow it would please God. That repentance from leads to death um, or, or repentance from, from dead works, I, I think that's what it is today. It is dead works. They're acts and activities not based on repentance and faith. Going to church doesn't cut it with God if there's no repentance and faith. Reading your Bible doesn't cut it with God if there's no repentance and faith. Giving money to the poor, it doesn't do it. It's not what it's about. Even getting baptized, it's not what it's about. It's about repentance and faith. And to receive faith, true biblical faith, we must have true biblical repentance, a turning, turning to him. Repentance, as I've said earlier, it doesn't start with us. Repentance always begins with God. We cannot repent unless God points something out to us. He reveals things to us by his spirit. So everything that we receive and everything we have, it originates with God. It's God's free sovereign grace to, uh, to us. Um, so God comes and he offers us something and we respond to him. It says in John 6 and 44, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him to me. That's what I've been saying all along this evening. So in this age of God's grace, I believe, now not everyone will believe what I'm going to say now, I believe God is calling everyone to repentance. I don't think God selects some and rejects others as though there is and an election of people, and God is, is only going to call the elect. I don't believe that personally. Now, there's lovely Christian men and women that do believe that, and that's fine. It's just you have to settle whether it is or not. Uh, in 2 Peter 3 and 9, it says, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. So God is seeking to call all men to himself. Accepting the Spirit's drawing leads to saving faith. As we come, as he calls us, and we come in repentance, we receive faith and eternal life. If we reject the call of God to come to him and then to repent, we continue on the journey that we have away from God. It says in Luke 33 and 3, but unless you repent, you will all perish. You've been listening to the Arise Bible Academy podcast. 
We hope you enjoyed today's teaching and please remember to come back next week for another instalment of the Foundations module. Also, if you would like to partner with Arise Ministry, you can do so securely on our website at www.ariseministry.org.uk Arise Ministry, a living legacy.